Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1007. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of God. Thanks, Colleen. I don't wear glasses. I, uh, I don't need glasses. In fact, I, f- I found these on Lost, the Lost and Found table this morning. If anybody needs them, uh, you can come see me afterwards, and for a small fee, I can get those to you. I've got 20-20 vision, but in today's fashion economy, glasses have become an accessory, haven't they? Listen to this article I read this past week. Research from the College of Optometrists reveals that a high percentage of people uh, believe glasses either make them look smarter or appear more professional and businesslike. I'm not sure what your immediate impressions of me were. Probably not more professional or smarter or businesslike. But it should come as no surprise then that a mass of two out of five people would wear frames, whether required to or not, to get ahead at work and to look fashionable at the same time. This article goes on to quote a popular fashionista named Gemma. And she posits that when your frames are right, you look good and you feel good. And that equals confidence. So what's the secret to success? It's mostly in the face shape, she says, but skin tone matters too. So here's some hot tips for you, Trinity, this morning. For oval faces, you can carry off bold styles, but always ensure your glasses are wider than the broadest part of your face. For square faces, rounder frames will soften your features. And then for round faces, angular narrow frames will help lengthen your face. Thank you, Gemma. Truly, accessory frames have turned into a billion-dollar industry. Accessories are take it or leave it because you don't need them. You don't have to have them. But our text today in Hebrews chapter 11 boasts something that is certainly not an accessory to your life. You just have to have it if you'd like to meet your maker on good terms when you breathe your last. This non-accessory is faith. And this morning, we're going to briefly highlight three aspects of faith from this text. 
You can think of this as kind of like an instant replay at a sporting event where multiple camera angles give you different views that may each change your perspective on a particular play. The reality is, is that they're all footage of the same exact thing, but each of them, each vantage point gives you a little more or a little different insight on the same exact play. So today, each of our three points center on the same concept of faith, but each will give us a slightly different perspective of faith. So take a look down at verse 6, and you'll notice, first of all this morning, that faith is a necessity, not an accessory. Faith is a necessity, not an accessory. Verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not take it or leave it. It's not something to strap on on your Sundays to ensure that you look the part. Faith is an absolutely pivotal piece of your relationship with God. You pleasing God is an absolute impossibility without faith. For the accessorizers among us, and I bet there are a few in here this morning, you can see without your frames, but without faith, you will never see God. Accessories are themselves oriented typically around an outfit. You've got the brown frames and the brown shoes to coordinate with the light blue shirt and the navy suit or whatever it is that you do. But faith itself should never orient itself around anything. Our lives instead orient around the faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But how many of us in here, I wonder, view our faith as an accessory to our lives instead, rather than our lives as an accessory to the faith. Have you ever thought that your gifts, whatever they may be, your charisma or your lack of it, your strength, your weakness, have you ever thought that they're given to you by God to accessorize the faith, to make it attractive and appealing to a watching world? That's exactly why God has rescued you, to be a light, a beacon in this world. These glasses that I took off a moment ago, I don't need them at all. Some of you in here, you, you treat your faith like that. You think of your faith as a way to accessorize your life, to make you appear a certain way, to feel a certain way about yourself, or to enjoy certain perks that come along with the faith. It's something to put on when it's convenient or when it'll help you be perceived by your friends or coworkers or whatever, other members in the church in a certain way. Well, the, the author of Hebrews wants us to de-accessorize our faith this morning and instead understand that our faith should be our functional center by which we live our lives. And when your faith becomes your center, you orient your life around it. But when faith is your center, you orient your weeks around it, your Sundays around it. You orient your relationships around it. You orient your finances. You orient your Netflix account. You orient your alarm clock, your work habits, your eating habits, because faith isn't an accessory. It's central. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Angle two, already. Faith produces present results by laying hold of past reality and future assurance. Laying hold of past reality, and future assurance. The college I attended boasted a worldwide acclaimed art gallery. Famous pieces from all over the globe landed there for whatever reason. It was a priceless, well-known collection. 
And each year, all the freshmen were required to walk through the gallery in its entirety. Trying to season 18-year-olds with a little bit of culture is a fool's errand, I think. But it was required to pass, like, the, the opening freshman class, so we went. And I do remember being so taken with so many of the pieces that were there and the stories that each of them told, each of them conveying something unique and important to the artist. Not only were the characters on the canvas important, but also telling a story about the person who painted the characters onto the canvas. Each piece came from a certain time, a certain place, a certain emotional space, if you will, uh, in the life of the artist. Where and how they grew up influenced what and how they painted. Well, our text today is much like that art gallery. Each portrait of each of these people, and we didn't take time to read through the whole chapter 11, but there's portrait after portrait after portrait of different saints in the history of the faith. And each of these portraits tells us something about a person from a real place who navigated through real difficulties in life. They all had moms and dads and aspirations and dreams. Uh, And then this entire chapter crescendos into this crazy description. Look with me, if you will, at verse 32. And kids, this is where you could draw some crazy pictures of this text. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of those who, skip to verse 33, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Man, is anyone feeling super ordinary right now? I am. But the author's intent here is not so much to highlight these extraordinary people as it is to unveil the common thread that tied all of these ordinary people together. What does the writer of Hebrews want us to see about these people here? The author wants us to see that these people were able to experience incredible difficulty by laying hold to past reality and then reaching into the future to take a hold of hopeful assurances from God simultaneously holding on to the past into the future. Look back there at verse 3. By faith, and this is the same faith that enabled the people in this chapter to do what they did. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So faith looks around and says, this is all God's. He made it, and it's his. Back in the day, he created it, And he owns it, and it's his. It's like when you own a house. You paint your walls whatever color pleases you. You don't run your your paint color by me or by anybody else because it's your house. God owns us because he made us. So if we want our faith to not be stagnant, to not just be something in the rearview mirror, but to be a present experience, to not just be an accessory, the reality is that we are not our own but that we were bought 
with the precious blood of King Jesus. To have present faith results, we must not forget the past reality. God made it all. But it's not only our past that we have to lay a hold of. It's also the future. Look at verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is like a, a, sort of like a holy discontent, always aching and hoping for God to make things right, to make things new and whole again. So to be of any earthly present good in your walk of life right now, our hearts need to be tethered to the promises of God. These promises need to be living in us, living through us. Without a hold on our glorious future, our present fruitfulness will wane. Sometimes, mulling over your future is the only way to hang on in the present. Harvey Dent once addressed the Gotham media, and he famously said, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. Any Dark Knight fans in the house? One of my faves. Harvey held out the prospect of future change to help people hold on the present despite the really bleak experience day-to-day in the city of Gotham. Now, I've never experienced the reality of this darkness more acutely than when driving my family south to Atlanta from Philadelphia. My family and Miriam's family both live in Atlanta. Usually we drive during the day and then into the night, which I can handle no problem. Sort of no problem for as much as you can with six people in a car all under the age of nine. Um, Well, not all of us are under the age of nine, I guess. That would be awkward. I won't tell you what the adults' ages are under, but four children under the age of nine. But one time, one time, we drove all night and into the day, which is no bueno for me at all. I cannot do it, and we haven't done it since. Those hours just before the dawn are the worst. Can I get an amen here today? Man, face slaps. Um, should have slapped the other face, the side of the face. Um, you know, you're stretching your eyes open. But, but when morning finally dawns, and the soft glow of the sun brightens over the horizon ever so slightly in front of you, it's like it breathes new life into you. It's like this automatic five-hour energy has been injected into you. And your whole perspective on the bitter desperation you were feeling just moments ago completely shifts. You can't see the sun yet, but you know it's coming because you can see, you can see the evidence. Your life right now, friends, might be feeling a little bit like you're driving in the dark in those wee hours of the morning. You may be holding out hope that morning joy will finally dawn. It's been hours since your last rest stop. The rest of the car is asleep and you're plowing forward in silence, just trying to hang on. You just want rest. In those moments, Trinity, your present usefulness is not being held at bay. It can be on full display as you set your hopes in the assured future of your king. You might not see him yet, but the evidence that he has come and that he will again come is all around you. This is exactly how and why all the folks in this chapter hung, <clears throat> hung on 
through such challenging trials because their faith was tethered to their future hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you think that these people here in Hebrews 11 were sustained by a prayer that they prayed decades ago? No. They were sustained by the present reality of their faith that was reaching into the future for sustaining hope. They changed the world with the present pursuit of their faith. So the thing to notice about these people here in Hebrews 11 is not their personality traits, not their training, not their upbringing. We are not told that Abraham was especially resourceful or that Moses was a charismatic leader or that those who suffered well were born with extra doses of courage. The only thing that made them different from others was their faith. Without faith, none of these, Hebrews and he, none of these heroes in Hebrews 11 would have lived in the ways that they did with the impact that they had. But by faith, they lived with the power the world knows nothing about and gained a salvation that the world scoffs at. Because of their faith, verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. So this text, for the many portraits, the many varied portraits it boasts, isn't so much about the portraits as it is about the frames around the portraits. Each portrait in this chapter is framed by faith. In fact, that phrase is used close to 20 times in this chapter alone. How did these early ordinary Christians literally flip the world upside down like Acts 17 says? Faith. So I think, I think one of the implicit functions of this text in our lives day to day is to demonstrate that our faith is lived out in real time as real people in real places and then really differently from one another. Just like it was for those in Hebrews 11. Now each of these stories in Hebrews 11, they're radically different from one another. Some are victorious, some are tragic, some are strange, some are straightforward, some are violent, some are transcendent. But each portrait is rooted in the real-life experience of real people. It's not mentioned here, but each of these people had a mom and a dad, hopes and dreams, pets and kids, favorite restaurants and parks. And yet, because of their faith, their lives speak from the grave. So I don't want us leaving this morning feeling and acting as if faith is this theoretical concept that lives out in the ether somewhere, separated from time and space. Uh, separated from real life, excuse me. That's what this chapter is all about. Faith is a present reality, experience, and pursuit of ours. So this morning, we are like breezing by these portraits, fresh, freshman year style, just going by them very quickly in the gallery of Hebrews 11. One day, we'll return and we'll gaze intently at each of these portraits. But as we walk by them this morning, I challenge you to reject the idea that these were unique people with unique gifts and unique faith. It's simply not true especially as you dig into the lives of some of these people who appear here in this list, these are some messed up, broken people. So friends, in your ordinary lives, how might God be calling you to express your faith in ordinary ways? God's probably not calling you to build an ark, but maybe he's calling you to build community with the people in this fellowship.
God may not be calling you to be sawn in half. Can I get an amen this morning? But he may just be calling you to proclaim the good news, the good renewing news of the gospel to your neighbor, to your coworker, even if they might shake your head, shake their head. If they shake your head, you should probably call the cops. Um, or if they're going to give you a hard time. God may not be calling you like Abraham to leave your home and traverse the globe. He may just be calling you to exercise your faith across the street, on your block, at your park, in your workplace, whatever. God's going to use faithful, ordinary saints like us, just like he used these people. Because we have access to the same power, the same thread, the same faith thread that wove through their lives can pierce the veil of our lives and draw us into meaningful, faithful existence. Our vision here at Trinity, you see it every week on screen, is this. Every single one of us, every single member living and striving to see the renewing power of the gospel made visible for Jesus' fame, for Abington, and for the world. So as, as your pastors, do you know how we expect to see this vision come to fruition? It's you. I should say it's, it's us. It's all of us. I mean, at some level, we can outsource the for-the-world piece to the hands of the professionals. We can fork out some of our hard-earned dollars to make that a reality, right? To fuel the mission across the globe. That's why we support missionaries after all. But if we're to see the renewing power of the gospel made visible right here in Abington, who are we going to outsource that work to? We can't pay someone to do that for us because it's on us. Who else is going to live by faith in Abington, Jenkintown, or Willow Grove, or whatever it is that you live? How does God change the world through those faithful servants across the globe and through faithful servants right here? Those of us who live by faith with a death grip on God's promises, that's who God uses to change the world. So if we are to see our lives transformed or our neighborhood's lives transformed, the poor finding meaningful employment and better finding meaning in Jesus, the marginalized being loved into the light, addicts becoming worshipers, thieves becoming givers, Deadbeat dads becoming engaged fathers. Lusters becoming true lovers. Racial discord transformed into gospel harmony. Prostitutes becoming Christians. If we're to see these empty spaces in these pews filled with people who are searching for meaning and a reason for existence and hope, legit broken people who are needy and they know it, we cannot outsource this or it will never get done. This is on us, Trinity. If we're to see ourselves and the people in the community that you live in renewed, we're going to need something more than Sunday-only faith, aren't we? Hebrews 11 is anything but Sunday-only faith. Merely going to a place on Sundays never changed your neighborhood on Mondays. And can I just say here for a moment that the intent this morning is not to lay some kind of gigantic burden of mission on our collective shoulders. God's call this morning is simple. Live by faith. We'll leave the results to him, but we can't outsource living by faith. We can't pay someone to do that for us. 
These people in Hebrews 11, their lives speak volumes about their God, and their lives speak those volumes because of their faith. Our lives will speak volumes about this same God by faith. I just believe fully that if we're, if we're being faithful as individual followers of Jesus, he's going to bless that, and he's going to use that to the praise of his glory and to the renewal of our community here and the communities all around us. So your faith this morning, it's not an adornment for Sundays. It's oxygen for your everydays. Faith, faith grips the past reality and future promises of God. And then finally today, the third angle. Faith is all about its object, not itself. Faith is all about its object and not itself. This chapter doesn't speak to the measure of faith these men and women had. God's ability to use you has nothing to do with the quantity of faith that you have. It has everything to do with the object that your faith is in. Faith can do extraordinary things in anyone's life. If you live by faith in the God of this book, it does not matter who you are or what you have done, good or bad. You can make a difference in God's kingdom. What really matters is not your personality or your persuasiveness, your seminary training, or your brand new belief in Jesus. By faith, you can be a spiritual hero like these in, in Hebrews 11. Why? Is it, become a, is it because of some secret sauce inherent to faith? Or is it because faith will unleash your hidden potential? Nope. Not at all. Faith can do great things in you and through you because God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith gains its power from its object. The saving God who gives grace to those who trust in him. So what matters this morning, friends, is not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. The amount of your faith is dependent upon you at some level. Depending on what season of life you're in right now, what temperature is in the room right now, what you're feeling on a particular day, your faith may be bigger or smaller. But do you know who never gets bigger or smaller? God never gets bigger or smaller, the object of your faith. So look there at the end of verse 6. Check out the simple content of the faith that pleases God. It must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is a belief that God exists. Now, it's not merely a belief in a higher power. It's not merely a theistic view of the world. Like, I think something probably created all of this at some point distantly in, in, in history. It's more than that. It's a belief in the God who has revealed himself through this book. That's what faith is. It's a belief that this God exists. So we must believe not only that this God exists, but that also one of his core attributes is that he is a good rewarder of those who seek him. This is the kind of faith that turned the world upside down for those in Hebrews 11. This is the kind of faith that will make the renewing power of the gospel visible in Abington or wherever you live and work. Mission isn't rocket science. It's faithfulness. It's just a life oriented around these central truths. God is real. God is good. And God rewards. God is real. God is good. 
God rewards. So don't obsess over whether or not your faith is strong enough. Jesus had strong faith for you. And God rewards you, get this, God rewards you for his faith, not the, not the level of yours. Revel in the fact that the God your faith is pointed at is perfectly strong, even if you're not. And you're not. It does not matter how ordinary or extraordinary you or your gifts or your faith are. It doesn't matter because faith is about its object, not itself. In fact, in one of these faith portraits here in Hebrews 11, we find Abraham. We, find, we, we see here Abraham's initial deposit of faith in God. You can see it there in verse 8. But if you were to flip all the way back to Genesis and read what happens next after this account here from Hebrews 11, you might be, in some kind of weird way, encouraged by his faltering faith. Like when a coworker bumbles through a presentation and you feel this sick sort of sadistic joy that you're not the only one who gets nervous in front of the boss. Come on. Have some of you felt that before? Just be honest when your coworker messes up. John, you better sit on your hands, bro. Um, <laughs> well, feel that for a second here with Abraham. Feel that sadistic joy that God used a joker like him, and he's going to use a joker like you. Because it's not about your amount of faith. It's about the object of your faith being strong. But I do have a slight concern here that we tend to sink the roots of our faith down into faith itself. This is a subtle nuance, but it's worth us considering just for a moment here. We say things like, oh, if you'll just believe, you're going to make it. Or, oh, she's going to be fine. She's got plenty of faith. She'll get through it. Well, faith in what? It's not just about having faith. It's about having faith in the God who exists and rewards. It's not about faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's not enough to simply have faith. Everybody has faith in something. Even the demons believe, right? Honestly, I think this is where health and wealth gospel and where that DVD comes in and is really strong here that I handed out and that will most certainly be handed out throughout the congregation over the course of the next year or two. Um, this is where it falls short. Name it and claim it Christianity falls short of God's revealed truth. They deliver a dangerously unbiblical teaching. So let me encourage you to stay far away from it, or at least to address it with the filter of God's word. They say, if you just have enough faith, you're going to be healed. There's always this sort of elite spirituality that's just out of your reach, that you can never quite get to, that you've missed. More faith would heal you, they say. Tell that to the faithful saints there in verse 37. Oh, if you just believe more, God will bless your bank accounts. He's all about your best life now. You just need a little more faith. You just got to believe. That is garbage, Trinity. Reject it. Those liars make your health and your prosperity dependent upon your quantity of faith rather than the object of your faith. True faith isn't about itself. It's about its object. So when you think about your life of faith, let the streams of your thoughts flood to the object of your faith, to the God of your faith, not to the amount or the quality of your faith. Well, this leads us finally this morning to our big idea. This is the central concept that we're trying to convey this morning, like a, a sort of short, portable truth for the road to take with us. It's this. 
When God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. When God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. Noah built a boat 500 miles away from the nearest ocean, a thousand times too big for his family, and he starts filling it with animals. Are you with me here? That is absurd. That's absurd. God's people root their faith in God's promises. They will live with God's priorities, however absurd they are. Abraham left his home. Look down at verse 8. He didn't even know where he was going. He left it all behind, not for a better job, not for a beach house, not to be closer to family. He left by faith because God told him to. That's absurd. But when God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. And God used these people in countless lives like ours. He has used them in our lives to rivet our hopes to the cross. It's a beautiful picture of God using simple, faithful, but hard obedience to reap untold amounts of fruit in us and through us. So what story will your life tell, the portrait of your life? I hope mine will tell a story that has lived by faith. You know, if you sit down tonight, maybe, or sometime this week, and flip through your kid's history book, you won't find any of these heroes of the faith. I can pretty much guarantee it. Why is that? Because there is at least one thing that faith will not do for you. We've alluded to it already this morning. Faith will not give you worldly fame and fortune. These heroes of the faith apparently have gone too long for the babies. They're all joining in chorus now. Faith will not give you worldly fame and fortune. These heroes of the faith were nobodies in the world's eyes. But by faith, they are heirs with the reigning king of the universe, brothers of Christ and sons of God, sisters of Christ and daughters of God. That's who they are. That's who we are by faith. Their faith didn't commend them to the world. For most of them, their faith earned them the world's contempt. Many of them were even killed for their faith. But look at verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. What commendation was that? By faith, they were commended by God. It doesn't get any better than being commended by your maker. It is by faith, then, that you and me, too, can be commended by God. It's by faith in another, in the accomplishments of another. These people right here, they're not the, hero, the heroes of Hebrews 11. These people are not the heroes of Hebrews 11. Jesus is the hero of Hebrews 11. He gives us life. He gives us his life, his death, and his resurrection to have faith in his cross fuels help for today and hope for tomorrow. Because of his cross, you can be not only forgiven and received, but actually pleasing to God with your life, commended by him. Crazy. So what is it then that really matters in your life? Hebrews 11 says that what matters most about you is your faith. Hebrews 11 says that if you want to leave a truly meaningful legacy that will speak from the grave, be faithful. If you want to impact the world around you for Christ, be faithful. If you want your kids to remember you for anything, let it be that you are faithful. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Since that is true, nothing is more important than you flexing your faith muscles, as weak as they may be. Because through your faith, though your faith is weak, the object of your faith is strong. And when the object of our faith is strong, who can stand against us? When God's people root their faith in God's promises, they will live with God's priorities. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need, we need help. Our faith is small. Increase our faith. Grow our faith. Pray that you give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we are drawn to your word and that we strengthen our faith muscles by reading your word and getting to know you more and your steadfast love for us. I pray that the arrows of our faith would point to the object of our faith and not our faith itself. In Jesus' name, amen.